Welcome to Energy Transitions, a podcast brought to you by Endless Europe and Friends. In this series, we will spotlight the people and projects driving change and innovation in Europe's energy sector. You can download this and all other episodes on endlit-europe.com slash podcasts. Now, let's start today's conversation. Hello, and welcome to today's podcast, brought to you by Power Engineering International and Inlet Europe. My name is Pamela Larg, your host for today's session. Today, we will be chatting about the applications of ocean thermal energy conversion, or OTEC. And to talk about this in more detail, we are joined by Dan Grek, founder and CEO of Global OTEC, and Dr. Tessa Cordelia, Senior Research Fellow at University of Exeter, and academic member of the Marine Eye team. The discussion was sparked with the recent announcement that Global OTEC was to deploy ocean thermal energy conversion technology in Sao Tome and Principe, a small island nation requiring clean energy. So without any further ado, Dan, please can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and Global OTEC so we can set the scene before we delve into the project in more detail. Over to you, Dan. Thank you very much, Pamela. Uh, yes, my name is Dan Grek. I'm the founder and CEO of Global OTEC. We're changing the way which small islands and coastal cities around the tropics are powered by converting the vast resource of ocean thermal energy into reusable electricity, water and food. You rightly introduced that this is called ocean thermal energy conversion or OTEC. And really, we're using components that have been either proven in the field of oil and gas offshore or at OTEC demonstration facilities. And we have plans for um, the first small scale commercial system. And we expect that to come online in Sao Tome and Principe by around the year 2024. Fantastic. Thank you for that introduction. Uh, Tessa, can I ask you to, to tell us a little bit more about yourself? and the work that you're doing at Marine Eye, as well as the University of Exeter. Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me along. Uh, my name is Tessa Cordelia. I'm a business research fellow, um, and I work on the Marine Eye project at the University of Exeter. So a bit about myself. Um, I'm a chartered mechanical engineer, and I specialise in offshore renewable energy. I'm really passionate about creating kind of a more sustainable future and using kind of my engineering knowledge to help to do that. And I guess from a personal perspective, I, I really love the sea. I'm always like inspired and in awe of the sea. And I love the idea of kind of the, the power that the sea holds and thinking of ways that we can use the sea to deliver green energy. And there's lots of different ways we can do that. And ocean, ocean thermal energy conversion is one of those. So it's, it's really exciting to be here today to talk about OTEC power and how we can do that with them. In terms of the Marine Eye project itself, it's a collaborative project based in Cornwall and the Isles of Scilly in the UK. And it's a collaboration between local universities, a college and some other organisations such as the Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult. It's funded through the European Regional Development Fund. And um, the main aim of the project is to support small and medium businesses with, um, with research and innovation in the marine sector. So it doesn't have to specifically be renewable energy. Renewable energy does make up a lot of the projects we're looking at at the moment, but it can be kind of any innovation within the marine sector. And what the programme does is it, is it gives these businesses access to uh, research support, research test facilities, um, also funding, and it kind of provides them with business support as well to help them develop products or services and bring them closer to commercialisation with the idea that they can then kind of create new global market opportunities for Cornish businesses. 
So we've worked with Global ATEC on um, the first phase of Marine 9. We're, we're looking at developing projects with them and um, going forward into the second phase as well. Lovely. Thank you for that, Tessa. A great initiative. But I think, Dan, if I can go back to you and just find out a bit more about the project um, that you are working on in, in Sao Tome and Principe, it would be great to understand a little bit more about the, the technology being deployed. Why was that area chosen in general? If you can just give us a bit more information, that would be great. Yeah, sure, very happy to. So um, actually, the, the, the beginning of our journey with OTEC, um, it started with Marini back in 2018 as we awarded a a grant under Marini, one as Tessa rightly pointed out. And the view then was that the Maldives would be an ideal market for uh, the, the mass production and deployment of a really a standardized small scale OTEC plant, uh, which would allow us to help with. There's a lot of challenges with the, the commercial aspects of OTEC plants today. A lot of developers have tried to go too big too quickly, and smaller plants haven't really seen as being economical. So we thought that having a, a plan to scale up and improve insurance premiums with de-risking the system, um, we calculated a way to do that if we could get the first 1.5 megawatt net system deployed. So we started with the Maldives. We saw this as an ideal place to scale up. We didn't necessarily need to rely on the public sector. You've got 130 resort islands which stand alone, powered by diesel generators there, and about 186 islands where... Maldivian people live. So the Marine Eye funds afforded us to do the initial feasibility studies of this entry market and also the concept and preliminary design phases for the floating structure. Now, the reason we use a floating structure is, again, another point to make the economics work. An onshore OTEC plant typically requires a, a really long cold water pipe stretching anything between one to five or six kilometres down the seabed navigating tricky rock formations, cutting through coral. And this renders a lot of OTEC concepts as just, you know, unfundable. They're not bankable. By using a floating platform, we cut the length of that pipe by around 80%. So depending where you are in the world, you're looking at between 800 to 1500 metres of vertical distance from sea level down to the, the cold water resource we need to, to run the OTEC system. So the idea was deploy that in the Maldives, but uh, obviously COVID-19 came along and, and completely wrecked the tourism sector there. So we had, we had a bit of soul searching um, in the kind of beginning to middle part of 2020 on where we go next. The reason we went with Sartome and Principe is it is truly in one of the most ideal places for OTEC in the world. The fundamentals for running an OTEC plant is to have a temperature difference of delta T between warm surface water and cold deep water of around 20 degrees. That's a box ticked for Sartome and Principe. You need a relatively, you need a reasonable distance between shore and the resource, because although we're not laying really long pipelines, we are laying cables, which are subject to transmission losses, and there's a material cost there as well. So Sartome and Principe, anywhere between three and seven kilometers offshore to find this OTEC resource. So that's another tick. Looking at the graveyard of OTEC projects over the last few decades, uh, one of the very sad common occurrences uh, were OTEC plants being destroyed by hurricanes. One in Nauru, another in Cuba. Uh, Cuba was 1930. I think Nauru was 
was in the 90s or, or 80s. There's a great video about it on, on YouTube that you can see all the kind of classic footage of, of the plant being built back then. And I think that was led by Toshiba and, and Japanese researchers. But I think a key point is that you know, OTEC has really been set back decades by these pioneering plants being affected by hurricanes. So Sartome and Principe is in a very benign weather environment, tucked into the Gulf of Guinea, um, in a relatively short distance to uh, Gabon and Equatorial Guinea. So aside from it just fitting the, the fundamentals of of making an OTEC plant work technically and commercially, we're mitigating a, a big risk that has held OTEC back previously. And our view is if we can deploy and, and get a, a track record for this OTEC plant without disruption, then we can start to deploy some more cutting edge designs we have to withstand hurricanes, knowing that we've de-risked the commercial aspects and uh, the, bankabilities, the bankability of the projects. Thank you for that, Dan. I think it's quite interesting for us to to understand a bit more about some of the challenges behind this uh, technology and the deployment thereof. Uh, Tessa, in terms of, you know, Dan was talking about, for example, hurricanes and, you know, how that influences project bankability. Would you like to share any thoughts perhaps on some of these challenges uh, that you believe have, have hindered the sector? Yeah, certainly. So it's a really good point that Dan's raised about the kind of conditions where you deploy your devices. Um, and some of this work was actually covered in uh, the first marine eye project that we did with Global ATEC. So through this project, which was very much focused on the Maldives, but we can use it as a, as a case study for the next project that Global ATEC are looking at. We have a whole group of kind of expert oceanographic researchers within the University of Exeter, and they can do some really specialist modelling looking at wave height, wave direction, wind speed, wind direction, current speeds. And bringing that all together, looking at extreme events, so looking at kind of different return periods. So that's the estimated time between events. So you might look at a one-year return event, a 10-year return event, and then a 100-year event. So that would be like your real storm conditions that you do need to make sure that you design to. And what they did in the previous project was quantify all those meta-ocean conditions to look at what extreme events you have to design your system to survive. And again, that's very much something that we would look to be doing um, for the next project with Global ATEC. Um, in addition to kind of those, those standard metation conditions, you also need to, as, as Dan's rightly raised, make sure that the temperature differential between the surface temperature and the deep waters is good enough to run the, the ATEC device. And obviously, we know that in those areas um, that have been identified, it certainly is. But what we can use specialist modelling for is kind of just making making absolutely sure where the currents are flowing and things that we know what the um, what the temperature differential is, and also looking at the kind of the salinity in those areas to make sure that the systems are de designed to to operate in in kind of that salinity. Also, going forward, I think we need to do modelling looking at the platform and the survivability in those in those storm events that we've identified from the Metocean modelling. And the research group that I work with have got a lot of experience in wave energy devices and in kind of mooring systems and securing wave energy devices and the reliability testing of wave energy devices. So again, we can kind of bring that research background from the wave energy sector and transfer that straight into kind of the, the, the needs to improve the reliability of the OTEC sector. Thank you for that, Tessa. A lot of technical detail uh, that, to be honest, I hadn't even considered, but really interesting. Thanks for explaining. If I can just take more of a, a macro perspective for a moment on the technology. And, and Tessa, I'm going to start with you before I hand over to Dan. 
Do you believe that oat tech technology has the potential to really support decarbonisation of small island nations? Certainly, it's a very good technology for a lot of these islands. So many of the small island developing states, you know, are are already exposed to kind of the impacts of global warming and the impacts of sea level rising and the kind of shifting global weather patterns that we're experiencing. And so there is kind of a heightened awareness within these states that something, you know, things really do need to change um, more so, I think, than, than some of some of the other larger nations. This technology is is very, very well suited to those small island um, developing states in the tropical regions because they're very, very reliant on very expensive imports for, for their energy. So often there'll be very expensive imports of oil to run generators. You know, not only are these bad for climate change, they're also very bad economically. They're very reliant on kind of the volatility of the market of importing those fuel sources. So to be able to kind of generate their own energy, you know, is a, would be a huge plus for, for, for those areas um, in terms of the environment and also in terms of the economic business case. OTEC, what OTEC does very, very well is it's very incredibly predictable. So that temperature differential from the surface of the, to the deep waters is very consistent. So what it's really good at is kind of creating a baseload electricity supply and it's very, very predictable. So you, you know where you are with it. You're not going to, you know, you're not going to suddenly have a high increase in prices or a lack of supply so it's very suited in that way and additionally there are obviously other renewable energy sources that can be considered but often in these small islands kind of the land the land area for things like photovoltaic is more limited and so there's less options for, for, for other renewable energy sources although you know there's always a place to look at as many different options as possible I think in terms of um in terms of resolving kind of the energy um, security and sustainability for these nations. But I think OTEC certainly is a very, a very viable source of energy going forward, for sure. Thank you, Tessa. Uh, Dan, I'd love to get your thoughts on that as well. I, I thought Tessa's answer was absolutely brilliant, so I'm not sure what more I can add, um, apart from maybe some more detail in the context of OTEC for the small island developing states. The island's interest and desire for ocean energy it's nearly 10 years since the Barbados Declaration, where Ireland set out the plan for achieving sustainable energy for all in small island developing states. They've been calling for something they call SIDS appropriate technology to really ensure the, the realisation of the benefits of their renewable energy resources. Now, take a moment to consider that on average, each small island developing state governs over 20 times uh, ocean space than it possesses for land. Now that that land is under stress and is is struggling to provide enough food for its agriculture. There's you know, there's tourism is a very important part. So keeping things pristine and, and beautiful is critical. So the idea that these islands can use solar or other off the shelf technologies to not only decarbonize but catalyze sustainable development, they've known for many years that that's just not viable unless you're blessed with a I guess a hydro resource or or, or, or some geothermal, you know, there, there are challenges almost every step of the way for islands. But I think it was in 2015, the Sidstock Assembly, and Sidstock is the small island developing state docking centre, which is a UN recognised organisation 
serving about 32 islands on their energy security and climate resilience challenges. Uh, at the 2015 assembly, they really flagged that OTEC was the uh, priority technology which they needed to see deployed. They need pilot projects to be able to, I guess, make the case for more commercial and concessionary funding to aid these deployments. Now, small islands can be overlooked, but using the word small as a as a market in their in their title, but it's actually 20 gigawatts across the small island developing states of installed fossil fuel capacity, which needs to be replaced. And now these these are aging diesel generators, and, and it's hard to understand how they could replace these with more efficient systems and still meet their nationally determined contributions or NDCs towards the Paris Agreement. And again, the environmental case to the side, the economic one, these islands are spending two, three, or even four times the cost of electricity than we have in the in the developed world. Uh, I think it's up to around 40 cents per kilowatt hour on average. So in inaugural set of OTEC plants, we've modeled around a cost per kilowatt hour of 20 cents. So this is a, a real effort to catalyze sustainable development by not only slashing their energy costs in half, but giving them energy security. And, and I think a word Tessa didn't mention in her in her answer was this is baseload power. So unlike solar, which needs the sun to be shining, or wind, which obviously needs the wind to be blowing, OTEC is 24-7. The, the temperature differences, the fluctuations on the surface seawater is pretty negligible. Uh, in the parts of the world that could urgently need OTEC. So it is really, it's beyond the ideal solution. It's the only solution. Wow, Dan, a lot to consider and think about. And as you say, there's a lot of clean energy that needs to replace fossil fuels uh, quite urgently. Do you believe that uh, we will see some action at COP26 this year? So I'm really focused on uh, the ocean energy, OTEC and small island developing states aspect of COP. So, I, you know, I, I don't know if I'm the best person to provide an answer as to what action we're seeing. I can certainly judge by the announcements made so far. I think it's incredibly positive. We're on day two now, uh, by the way, for listeners, um, day two of COP. And I think it's certainly very positive that India has made its first ever commitment to net zero. And I think having a plan to reach 50% renewables for a population of 1.4 billion, I think that's 500 gigawatts of installed renewable capacity by the year 2030 is no small feat. However, I, I do feel that some of the key players are, are missing from, from being around the table. So, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I don't have a, a prediction or a forecast. I just like to uh, judge the announcements as they come. And uh, in, in two weeks time, I'll have a, a more appropriate answer. A fair comment, uh, Dan, and I think only time will tell what COP26 yields, but uh, definitely an encouraging start. Uh, Tessa, if I can just go back to you, what is next for Marine Eye and, you know, what are you working on at the moment uh, for the foreseeable future? So one of the really exciting areas that um, we've started working on more recently in Marine Eye is floating offshore wind technology. So there's been quite a lot of demonstration plants for this type of technology and it's been you know shown to be technologically possible and now kind of the next step for this is to you know make it kind of financial financially viable we're working with several different businesses based in Cornwall who are kind of 
developing different technologies to support with floating offshore wind energy. And the really exciting thing about it is that there are kind of high winds that develop further offshore that have never been accessible by fixed bottom turbines before. And so this kind of opens up a whole new a whole new area of, of wind resource that can now be accessed with the advent of this technology. There's a lot going on in the UK and, and across Europe in floating offshore wind. The Crown Estate has recently announced an intention to have a leasing ground for the Celtic Sea um, around Cornwall, between Cornwall and Wales, focusing on quite large scale, so 300 megawatt scale floating offshore wind technology. So that's an area that's keeping us quite busy in Marine Eye. We're also hoping to um, develop further work with Global ATEC. So looking at doing some more resource assessment of the Met Ocean conditions for them and looking, as I said, about the reliability um, of the platform and looking at, you know, platform reliability in kind of severe sea states. So there's lots going on, lots of other projects in the pipeline. And, you know, for any listeners that might be in the Cornwall, the Isles of City region, then, you know, do come and speak to the team because there's, there's a lot of research expertise and kind of research facility that that are there to support people developing ideas. Within Cornwall, there's a, you know, there's a big maritime heritage and, you know, supporting kind of that existing heritage, you know, to kind of diversify their existing knowledge and move it across to the renewable energy field is really exciting. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of kind of expertise that can kind of be adapted for that. Marie and I can be there to support with that. So, yeah, do come and speak to the team if, um, if there's any listeners that, that do have any interest in that. Well, I'm sure that our listeners will have have an interest uh, to learn more, as will we. And, uh, you know, floating wind is definitely something on the horizon that we'll be keeping an eye on. Dan, if I can also ask you, what are you guys focused on at the moment? And in the foreseeable future, what's next for, for Global OTEC? Sure. So we're just closing a seed round at the moment, and we're really hyper-focused on project development for Sartome and Principe alongside further downstream severe weather floating structures. So I think most immediately we're conducting the prerequisite studies of Sartome and Principe, looking at the geotechnical, geological aspects, bathymetry, thermography, uh, met-ocean conditions uh, to really validate the base case preliminary design that we've done already, that it's kind of fit for the environment. And if not, what changes need to be made? Is it over-engineered? What can we scale back? We expect that to be complete by probably around mid-Q1 of 2022. And at that point, we'll be able to give a kind of a detailed, a technically, economically, socially and environmentally sound proposal to the Sartomain government. And then we want to collaborate with them and um, the lead investor, the venture capital fund that have led our round so far into getting the capex together for a mix of concessionary grants, maybe some debt, but mostly equity between the project and our holding company to deploy this first system. So uh, that's going to keep us really busy up until the midway point of next year. And then it's a case of moving into detailed design, construction and installation. Wow, exciting times ahead. Please do keep us posted uh, and perhaps we can do a check-in again sometime next year. Uh, Dan, do you have any concluding thoughts that you would like to share with our listeners before we, we finish up? Um, my concluding thoughts would be, um, you know, whether you're listening to this podcast as a, an engineer or someone with a marketing, management, accounting background, and you're really inspired and 
passionate about working in renewables, but you're not yet, um, I would say that there's a, a space for you. I don't personally have a, an engineering background or degrees, but I use my sales, marketing, communication and management skills to put together an incredible team of people who are going to be able to pull off something that some of the biggest defence companies in the world failed to do over the last couple of decades. So, um, yeah, that, that would be my, my parting comments. Well, I think that's quite inspiring, to be honest. I think there are a lot of people who don't have engineering backgrounds, but they want to get involved and they, they want to make a difference. So thanks for that, Dan. Um, Tessa, if I can hand over to you for any concluding comments or anything you'd like to, to say to our listeners. Yeah, sure. So I think, you know, with COP26, it really, you know, does feel quite a pivotal time. I think, you know, from an engineering perspective, I think a lot of the technology is already here. We kind of, we know the technology, we know how to roll it out. And I think what, what I hope we see from COP26 is a real commitment from governments in supporting these. I think once we get government support and ambition, then the private finance kind of will come. But without that kind of commitment from different governments globally, I think raising the capital will be challenging. So I've got a lot of hopes pinned on COP26 we will see those kind of commitments to kind of allow this technology to come and help. As I said, the technology is there. I think it just needs kind of that political will and that political commitment to um, support it. Again, obviously talking about um, small island developing states, I think I do also hope from COP26, we do see some funding being created to help people kind of at the forefront of climate change start adapting because often a lot of these nations aren't as responsible for what's going on now, but they are already seeing kind of quite strong impacts from it. So yeah, I do hope from COP26 that we basically kind of leadership from governments putting genuine commitments in place so that the policy can then support in rolling out more of the renewable energy types that we've discussed today. Yeah, so I think it's an exciting time and um, there's a lot that can be done and, and I'm hopeful that we will do it. Thank you, Tessa. I think that uh, it is a pivotal time indeed. And uh, we do hope that, you know, government will really get behind uh, some of the technology that, as you say, it's already there, it's already available. You know, we just have to start really scaling it up and quickly. Uh, Dan, Tessa, unfortunately, that's all we have time for. But I would like to thank you for joining us today for this podcast uh, and sharing your insights with us. It has been fascinating. And thank you to our listeners for joining us. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Goodbye. You've been listening to Energy Transitions, a podcast brought to you by Enlit Europe and friends. You can listen again and hear all other episodes on enlit-europe.com slash podcasts. And don't forget to catch up on our other great digital content on our 365 platform, enlit-europe.com.